Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. I've chatted to people living with dementia, those looking after them, to actors, poets, artists, musicians, filmmakers and best-selling authors, and every one of them has taught me something new. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last decade. At the time, my family and I knew virtually nothing about the condition. We were worried, frightened and overwhelmed, possibly in denial about what might be wrong with mum, and sadly that's an all-too-common scenario. Now though, through my campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel set of diseases. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life with dementia. I know it's down to all of us to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. This week, at the end of the line, I have not one, but four guests. Yes, four. An all-time Well, I Know Now record. So wish me luck. It was important, though, I felt to talk to them all as they each play different roles in a Folkestone-based company that works with older people and their families to improve their well-being. Plan with Care is the brainchild of Chris Gage, a social entrepreneur with a passion to improve quality and care, and his friend Nathan Harris, a chartered financial planner with over 20 years in his sector. Both men had seen older members of their families reach the stage where they needed more care. And professionally, the pair had seen how older people, particularly those with dementia, struggle to plan for their care and well-being. In 2018, they set up Plan with Care, a company whose consultants work alongside the family, friends and, importantly, solicitors of older people, helping them to plan their care. Wellbeing consultants take time to understand an individual's passions and goals, offering each family support and guidance through what is almost always a difficult period for all. Chris Gage is a strong believer in the importance of creativity and care, and says creativity, which should be the norm in every care setting, is often impeded by fear which creeps in from different angles, from the negative media backdrop, from local authorities and relatives who are understandably anxious about safety, and from the weight of compliance rules. But, says Chris, with real leadership, creativity can provide more much-needed time, and when other people, such as police, children, volunteers, are encouraged into care homes, a virtuous circle is created. Carers have more time, and a sense of freedom and confidence grows. Nathan Harris grew up in Dover, and as a child, his grandmother played a big part of his life. When years later she developed dementia, this hit him hard. He found it difficult to engage with her and turned to his friend Chris for advice. By now, a financial planner with expertise in pensions, investments and tax planning, he saw too the burden that his grandmother's dementia placed on his mother as she struggled to make difficult decisions with little or no guidance. Alice Kirtley, my third guest, is someone I first met at a dementia conference several years ago when I was struck by her thoughtfulness and quiet confidence. Alice, it turns out, is Plan With Care's lead wellbeing consultant and I have to say this discovery made me very keen to know more about the company. Alice's credentials are impressive. She's worked with care homes as a culture change manager and practice development consultant. She's delivered care training contributed to the Mental Health Foundation's Dementia Truth Inquiry. She holds a Master's in Ethical Business Development in Dementia Care and is qualified in various aspects of advanced dementia care. But more than this, she has an ethos of care that runs through her, from her physical demeanour to the haunting songs she writes and performs with her band, The Bearing. A classically trained pianist and composer, Elise began her musical journey aged six. But asked when she was 11 whether she wanted to be a musician, she wrote... I will always love music, but I want to do something that will help people. Now, she sometimes combines the two, bringing songs into her caring role. I was introduced to my fourth guest through her wonderful blogs. Carrie Yokim, a qualified counsellor with many years of experience working for charities, is an assistant wellbeing consultant and a creative companion at Plan With Care. Growing up in Kent, she was very close to her grandmother, who developed dementia, and lived with Carrie and her family until she moved into a care home after a series of falls. 
It was at the care home that Carrie met a carer who made it her business to get to know them all, leafing through family albums and listening to all their stories. Carrie says that though her grandma was never the easiest of ladies, this wonderful carer handled her with patience and grace, loving her grandma for the fight she still had. This had a real impact on me and I remember thinking at the time that this must be the most amazing job ever, Carrie told me. Well, we have a lot to talk about, so without further ado, may I offer you all, Carrie, Chris, Nathan and Elise, a very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. So first, I'm going to turn to Chris and Nathan to tell me about how the conversations between them about Nathan's grandmother and the difficulties faced by families struggling to cope with loved ones, which you both witnessed from your different professional perspectives, led to Plan With Care. How did the conversations go? And what were the steps along the way to finally setting up the company in 2018? And Nathan, perhaps I'll turn to you first to talk a bit about your, your grandma. Yeah, um, Chris and I had been friends for some time. And at that stage, my grandmother was going to a home and I would go and visit her every now and again, not as much as my mother or, or my sisters. But whenever I went now, I really struggled because she didn't recognise me. We didn't really have much of a conversation. I always felt a little bit disappointed with my visits. And then having conversations with Chris, he got me to almost reframe what I was doing at those visits. It was really nothing for me. It was actually for my grandma's benefit. And as long as she had a nice chat and a nice time, it it really didn't matter if if she did recognise me or not. And I just needed to learn to to grasp those few times when there was a bit of recognition and she called me, oh, you're the naughty one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think when we were talking earlier, Nathan, you said that in a way you've got to just change your mentality, your outlook on this, because you're not going to get the same out of it as you might with, you know, going to see a friend or something. It's a different sort of scenario, really. Yeah, exactly. And, and try and be try and be positive as you can be. Yes. And, and I think that seed started to grow mm. when talking about things, about services, is, well, actually reframing this experience. It, it, it can be... Uh, quite a, a negative experience for everyone going to home. So mm. why? how can we make that a more of a positive one? Mm. And I think Chris also gave you some good advice about using sort of visual pointers for your grandma, didn't he? You know. Yeah, it's, it's like this idea actually people with dementia are able to pick up on signals mm. and will be less frustrated if you can gently sort of guide them to know who you are or how you're connected with people there. Mm. And, yeah. and if they get you mixed up, that's fine still. Just just go with just it and make sure. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think probably then I can exactly myself see the scenario of you looking to advise for your friend and then you with all your financial experience thinking, well, actually, this is great synchronicity here. And, you know, you, Nathan, can advise people on the finances, but you don't know about the care side of it. It might not even be appropriate sort of professionally, ethically for to start telling them which is the best or whatever. Just explain that and then how you you came up with this idea, didn't you, of what was needed. It wasn't really so much a financial planning consultant. And... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what, what happened is, is just this realisation. I think when in my role as a financial planner, I had a quite a black and white view of somebody going to a home. Mm. And I think a lot of people think, well, that's that done then. Um, mm. We can't mm. do anything. And it's these conversations with Chris starting to open my eyes up. At the same time as seeing the incredible stress that my mum was going through, having to make all arrangements, I think changed care homes three or four times because as yes. the needs became more complex, yes. the, the homes weren't able to cope. So you go through that stage and I, I, then I was very much, my eyes were open to, mm. well, I can, I can sit down with people and tell them how their loved one can be financed but I can't give them any view on whether they're getting good quality care. And I shouldn't do because I'm not an expert. So Mm, mm. what would have been great is to be able to have where we would, in a financial sense, say, well, this is a good plan and this is going to meet your needs. Why couldn't we have something for the quality of care and well-being for that individual? And Mm, mm. that's where we came with Plan With Care. Mm, mm. And Chris, I think you you get very excited about this sort of thing, don't you? Apparently, according to Nathan, when I talked to him before, <laughs> so I think I think uh, on the train home you were busy writing your business plan. 
Yes, yeah, exactly. I was thinking a couple of points in, um, and uh, yeah, the the business plan was pretty much written at the, of course. the end. Perfect. Of the, I bet it was a really uh, good business absolutely plan. Absolutely nailed it. Yes, yes, it's brilliant. The uh, the banks just gave us millions straight away. Cool. <laughs> no, the seeds of it were there, yeah. and um, yeah, just really starting to think. And we started from the basis of this planning element, and um, what it's developed into is a essentially a full service offer from yeah. the plan through to being a consultant, managing all of the process or none of it. And we're now in the process of registering with CCQC so we can provide care as part of that wellbeing model as well. Yes. I know when I talked to Nathan before this, actually, he was saying that it's a very uh, flexible business model, isn't it, plan with care, because there's nothing to stop care homes working with you. I don't know if you, as as your sort of financial business hat on, uh, Nathan, want to take up that a bit. Yeah, I think what we realised is that trying to be all things to all people is a really tricky thing to do and and probably very unfair on the care settings. Um, Mm. They are trying to do their best on the whole. I think we need to give them, certainly not bash them and give them credit for it. What we said is, well, why can't we make a sort of wraparound care in addition to this to say well you've got those core parts covered the sort of the hygiene factors and we'll come and work alongside you and make sure those additional things that aren't really realistic for you to be able to organize we can do those and and actually for a cost benefit analysis mm. you might say that a care home costs fifty thousand, and the various initiatives or paying for the various types of people to come in to be with this person to improve their their health and well-being might cost another five thousand. So, the idea of spending an extra ten percent but getting significant uplift to their well-being and in in an audited way that we can actually see the impact on on that individual, it just seemed to make a lot of sense. Yes, thank you, Nathan and Chris, for explaining the genesis of Plan With Care so well, which was really largely influenced by your own personal and professional backgrounds and experiences. Now, I'd like to turn, if I may, to Elise, who I think is very well placed to explain exactly what it is now, four years down the line, that Plan With Care actually does. Well, our whole ethos is around basically maximising the quality of later life. And that's regardless of what circumstances an individual's in. And everything's built upon a very deep connection between the person and our consultant and the whole service package. So uh, from a practical standpoint, we'd be going in to meet the person and any key people in that person's life. So that might be a solicitor, it might be family, it might be friends and neighbours, and spend a few hours with that person. From the consultant's perspective, I would be doing an assessment but from the client's perspective they're having a good deep chat about who they are and what they want out of their life and off the back of that we create a planning the future report does what it says on the tin which basically includes a whole lot of suggestions around what things what people what technologies resources we think could increase the quality of that person's life and those that are involved in it. So it's basically like doing a holistic well-being MOT. We look at someone's Mm. environmental, emotional Mm. and physical well-being Mm. and any interventions that we suggest, we take no commission off because that's that's one of the dangers of these areas is basically it's just the people and resources we think are the best for that individual. Yes, yes. I think um, another important factor with Plan With Care is that because I hear this so often, it's what people want. And struggle to find is it provides one point of contact throughout the journey a sort of navigator if you will that's right yeah so that first consultant that you'll meet at the initial assessment is the same person that you slowly slowly build up that trusted relationship with over time and that person is really available to you at any point along the entire membership and we have so many people say to us you know it's just so rewarding to know that it's always you at the end of the phone Um, because we've all had those experiences haven't we where where you you hit the call center and no one's handed over your story and and when you're in crisis and and emotional stress that's the very last thing you want is to tell your entire journey to another human being regardless of how lovely that other person is yes you're so right about that Elise and hearing you talk there about the 
trusted relationship that's built up and the deep connection that's built up between the individual and the consultant and how you maximise that individual's quality of life. I'd like now to bring in Carrie, because Carrie, you've formed and nurtured some fantastically strong relationships with your clients and you've written some beautiful blogs about them, which, as I said in the intro, is how I sort of was introduced to you, really. And the blogs show, um, beautifully in keeping with the podcast theme, how the smallest things can make the most difference. You have two roles, Carrie, as a well-being consultant and also as a creative companion. And I think it's in this role that you sort of wrote your first blog. You went into one of your clients' rooms to see Emma, who lives with dementia, and you found her half in and half out of bed. She's sort of stuck. <laughs> and you raised the alarm, worried that she might injure herself, and two carers came to move her. But although they were kind and gentle, Emma didn't really appreciate their attention and quickly, as you put it rather nicely, shared her thoughts with them. And she was also obviously quite cross, and the carers left and left you two to it. And then if you take up your blog from this point, Carrie, because you could see that Emma was intent, clearly intent, on getting out of bed for some reason. And using this, you know, deep sort of trust you'd built up with her and your skills and training, you decided to approach her in a different way. So you take it up now from your blog. Yes, of course. So she was still expressing her displeasure. So I asked her, where are you off to in a hurry, Emma? I'm late for school, she replied sharply. So this made complete sense of her desire to get out of bed and her frustration about being put back in again. Now I understood. It happened to be half term, so I used this to our advantage. It's half term this week, Emma. You don't have to go in today, I said. Emma calmed a little, but still seemed tense. So I went on to reassure her about it being half term. She loves birds, and I brought in a soft toy blue tit, her favourite British bird. When you squeeze it, it chirps and sings. Emma cupped the little bird in her hands so gently and carefully as if it were real. She kissed its little beak and smiled with tears in her eyes. She brought the bird up to her face again and felt its beak with her nose, which made her chuckle. We stroked its feathers and we spoke about how soft they were. It tweeted away in her hands, which she absolutely loved, and she laughed her infectious laugh. Oh, thank you, Paul, she said, looking at me. I knew Paul was her brother. I did not correct her, but smiled and stroked her hair and told her how lovely she looked today. Emma giggled and beamed a beautiful smile, and then we both giggled together, and she held my hand and waved it, something which we do when we are both sharing a joke together. This always makes us laugh more, as we both recognise they were sharing this moment together. The gift of laughter is always priceless. I thought that was so lovely, beautifully written, and we really sort of, you could just see it all unfolding. It, it illustrates so much, I think, that fairly short passage, because it shows that the small things, bringing in a little toy bird, what a massive difference it made when you brought it out to her. Um, and it also showed that you'd built up a lot of trust between you. You knew her, she knew you, and you were holding hands. And you entered her world. You didn't correct her. It, something that people often ask me, actually, you know, they say, well, look, if somebody says, oh, I'm going to visit my mum and, you know, they're not there or whatever it might be, you know, when Emma says I'm, you know, late for school, whatever it is, you enter their world. And um, I know that you've done a lot, Elise, about the truth and dementia and, you know, how it's a sort of different thing. It's it's a different thing when it comes to dementia. And you've also written blogs, Carrie, about how when people with dementia can't communicate verbally, how you can communicate through the senses. And you've done some, which almost seem to become sort of heightened with people with dementia. And you've done some lovely blogs explaining how you introduced colours with lights. And then it was, you know, like a a garden and um, the greenness and the warmth and the sun. And, you know, I, I loved the way that this small thing, particularly in that piece of a toy, took Emma from being agitated and distressed to having tears of joy in her eyes. I mean, that's really incredible, wonderful. And I suppose it's moments like that, Carrie, that you've just described 
that have taught you some of the lessons that you've learned that you know now and you didn't before that you you've let me know before today before today's podcast and one was there's always something that can be done no matter how small and um, just explain how once you offered some free therapy and the response you got which you found pretty amazing yes I was training at the time to become a counsellor and um, I lived near to a, a care home and I thought wouldn't it be wonderful to offer free therapy to people living with dementia and I went into the care home and spoke to the manager and she said well there's no point they're clearly gone there's nothing that you can do and I remember walking away feeling incredibly sad because mm. I don't like the feeling of anybody being given up on, mm. but actually becoming quite cross as well for the attitude of, yes, just simply just giving up on people. And it just didn't sit right with me. Yes, because I think, you know, when we were talking before, you said, you know, there is always something that can be done. And your blogs show that so well, I think. And I think you also said to me that you've you've actually learned a lot from Emma. Absolutely. I mean, Emma at the moment, so she's bed bound and so she doesn't come out of her bed. And I remember sitting in her room, racking my brains, thinking, what can I do? What can I do? Mm, mm. And I remember something very simple. Uh, a few years before, she would explain about her grandmother and um, her grandmother had lavender in her garden. And she would visit her grandmother frequently and count the bees on the lavender. Mm. So I thought, well, how about buying some lavender spray? It's only a pound from the shop. It's nothing yeah. incredibly expensive. Absolutely. But I had a bigger impact than what I thought I would have. So it completely, I brought it in and sprayed it in her room and thinking, well, let's see how this goes. And straight away, she was sitting up and alert. Really? <laughs> One, yes. And it ended up going into a conversation about her grandmother, which was beautiful to have that reminiscence over something so small and inexpensive. Absolutely. And it's your imagination, isn't it? And you, you know, for one pound, what you achieve with that. Yes, um, yes, it's quite incredible. And, and you've also said that, you know, sometimes you think, and I think we've all been in that position, actually, I certainly one was with my mum, where you're thinking, what can I do? And you feel a bit helpless and hopeless. Mm -hmm. And you were saying to me, you just sometimes hold Emma's hand and you think, well, I'm not doing much here. But of course, one is. Yes, absolutely. So there's times when she's a little bit sleepy mm. and I might have gone in with these ideas of what I can do, mm. but she's she's too sleepy. So right. um, I would go in and just hold her hand and then I would feel, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not doing very much. But then I would speak to her carers and they would comment, well, actually, it has a huge impact on her because she's so much more settled for a few days afterwards Really, so it has a sort of legacy effect. Yes, it lingers on. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, um, tell me, yeah, it's incredible. Which I really did not realise. So it was just so nice and comforting to hear that mm. just a just a simple handhold, if not, or just stroking a hand, has such an impact. Mm. It always strikes me when I talk to people who do, you know, your sort of job, or even if they're family carers, but they have this innate sort of caring, empathetic compassionate side to them how much you get from it too you know how wonderful it is for you I don't know if you feel that oh but my gosh yeah. I can hear it when you speak you know that for you we're talking about sitting and holding somebody's hand and people might think oh well, that's not much or getting a one pound lavender spray but mm. it obviously means such a lot to you it's the best job in the world I, I couldn't even call it a job really <laughs> yeah I still go into my holidays because I can't bear to not see her, but um, to see the look of contentment, joy on her face is just absolutely priceless. You just couldn't put a no. yeah, you couldn't put a price on it. Oh, that's lovely, and it does show how much we have to learn all the time. I know Alice said this to me as well before the podcast that you know don't write people off at all because we have so much to learn from 
people who might be living with dementia or whoever it is, whoever it is, there was something else that you know now that you said you'd learnt, Carrie, from it. And this was really not to take things personally. Just explain. This was this was very interesting. Yes, I went to go and visit Emma one day, and um, and she bit me, and I remember thinking at the time. <laughs> Oh my gosh, why, why are you biting me? And I got a little bit upset mm. by it. Mm, mm, and mm. after having a chat with Elise, she said about because she's um, Emma's very non-verbal, yes. she might be expressing something yes. to you. And then it was then that I sort of played back the situation in my mind that I realized that uh, it might have been the radio was up too loud. Wow, okay. Um, yeah. And playing adverts and stuff like that. So I thought, well, yes, I would find that a bit annoying as well. Mm, yeah. And so maybe it was that. So I actually um, went back and I changed the CD and uh, I put a CD on and it was Birdsong. Mm. And um, she responded beautifully mm. to that. And um, mm. it really settled her. Mm. And I remember speaking to the carers and um, just... By going into a room, it created a more relaxing and um, calming and almost therapeutic yes. settling uh, environment for Emma. And it made a big difference. So, yeah. Of course, yes. And that's I think that's incredibly interesting because so often the image of people with dementia, you know, in care homes or wherever really, is that stereotypical image, isn't it? And... I remember in my mum's care home, actually, there was a lady who sat in her chair and she would just keep shouting out, sit down, sit down, uh, sort of whenever anybody walked across or whatever. And it was just, you know, this is way back years ago. And I, I was so ignorant about dementia then. And honestly, I can admit that trying to talk to my mum, who wasn't in a great state, you know, it was just annoying, if I'm being perfectly honest. It was just like annoying. This thing was going on and this noise. And actually, it later transpired that I was talking to one of the carers and she was a teacher, this lady, who kept saying sit down. And so when people were sort of walking around the lounge of the care home, to her, I think they were her pupils, and she was saying sit down, you know, like a teacher. There tends to be a reason, doesn't there? Absolutely. And um, just by finding it, you unlock things like I was saying about Emma earlier about trying to get out of bed and getting quite cross about being put back in. Yeah, so it's just unlocking it, isn't it? And understanding. Yeah, now that's fascinating. Thank you. So Elise, now I'll turn to you because there are a couple of things there that I'd like to pick up with you because I think they were contained in some of the can't think of a better word for this the things that you know now that you didn't before your learnings <laughs> the first was that it's very much a sort of reciprocal arrangement with the I know you're not carers as such but with the person that someone is looking to you know let's call it a carer for the moment um, and the cared for and you say you continue to learn because whether the person has dementia or is cognitively impaired in any way it doesn't exclude them from being a teacher and number two sorry if I may give you a sort of two-pronged question mm -hmm. here that just was really interesting You've discovered that there has to be a baseline approach when it comes to what you can teach someone in terms of care. I say that now because it sprang to my mind as I listened to Carrie there because she so mm. obviously has this innate caring ability well beyond any baseline. Yeah. So if we go to the first one first, what caring gives back to people? Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting in our culture. We hold a lot of preciousness on intellect and intellect is often associated mm. with memory so you get yeah. this stigma attached to people mm. living with dementia just because of the memory loss but actually first of all anyone can be a teacher and I myself have had so many interactions with people where I've just I suppose that the main point is being forced if you like joyfully forced to be in the moment which for some people living with dementia is perhaps the majority of their time is spent living in the moment and in this frenetic life that we're all living it's all too easy to be distracted about the future and the past and yeah, the beauty of actually being held in, in the present. Mm. Um, I've been really grateful for time after time. Mm. You, I think this morning you were um, going to see a client, weren't you, who's really coming towards the end of her life, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yes, this lady is living in a care home and I was just going to see how the end of life support is being given and check that 
yeah, you know, all, all the baseline things like, is she getting the oral care that she needs? Is she having enough time with her creative companion who she's built up this wonderful relationship with? And she's not long since had a birthday. So her room was chock-a-block full of balloons mm. and cards, mm. which was a joy to see. And we connected on that conversation for a little while, but she didn't actually remember it was her birthday just the other day. And so it was me reconnecting her again in that present of look at all these balloons that are here to celebrate your life and Mm. yeah when we talked before we started recording you were saying to me that what was interesting as well there was that as we all are you know I think you were late I'm always late for everything (laughs) and so I completely understand that you know and we're always sort of you know rushing about but then once you got into the room with this lady it was just 90 minutes of being there with her, just making sure her lips were moist. That's it. You know, just making sure she had the bed cover or blanket that she wanted. Yeah. You are just there. There is something very special about that. And one always wonders when I talk to, so a lot of people say this to me and you think, why Why don't we do that more often? Mm, I know. It's, a, it's at the pinnacle of relationship building is the time spent between two human beings. And like mm. you said, yeah, I arrived rushing, worried about everything and then could just zone straight into Mm. that space and Mm. um Mm. yeah focus on those things in her room that give her so much joy and just focus on it just being me and her and because she's in um sort of the later parts of her journey with dementia she needs you to get quite up close and she's quite tactile and Mm. so it's Mm. it yeah you you really can't think of anything else you Mm. really are just right Mm. there up close in Mm. that in that Mm. space it's a very, um, I think you use this word um, when you emailed me before, it's a very privileged position, isn't it, when, when somebody is, is coming towards the end of their lives and, um, yeah. And the second thing, which actually is sort of all involved in that in a way, because I can hear when I talk to you and when I talk to Carrie, you know, this need to have a sort of instinctive reaction to all this, which you obviously have, Carrie has. Um, just explain about that, this strange intangible thing. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what words to put to it, but there's something about that it doesn't matter how much training you can give someone mm. around dementia, which is of course important too. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, knowledge is power, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this sort of baseline level that if there isn't a genuine heartfelt curiosity mm. for me to know you, then all the knowledge in the world is irrelevant. And almost you can bring someone in and you can just instantly see if they've got that level of empathy and curiosity about them. All of the diagnoses don't really matter because that's just all the other stuff on top of Mm -hmm. one human being trying to connect to another human being. Mm -hmm. And the curiosity comes with how are you trying? Because Mm -hmm. if it's just words, then, you know, you can give up on that quite easily with with people living with some diagnoses. Mm -hmm. But if instantly you can sort of sense that, well, actually, words here aren't quite enough what else can I bring is it the visual cues that Nathan was referring to Mm. is it touch can I hold this person's hand you know obviously respectfully and with consent Mm. what are all the things that we can do here to to Mm. actually communicate with one another Mm. that's really interesting I think really the curiosity I mean that's a good word to use I think there so Chris I can come back to you now because that sort of leads on to how you go about ensuring you do get these wonderful individuals like Alice and Carrie. I mean, how do you go about your recruiting? We put the word extraordinary in the title. That's the core of my approach so far. That coupled with quite an extensive network of creative, curious, passionate that I've met over the years. Mm. You mean you put it in your sort of advert? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Our latest tactic is to put, as the job role, extraordinary nurse, occupational therapist or social worker Mm. required and then kind of go on to explain the role because if we put care and well-being consultant required I'm not quite sure that it sounds very bland doesn't it it does rather which is um, the complete opposite of what we're looking for so that's the starting point and from there it is a at the heart of it is a conversation obviously we're looking at their cv and their track record Mm. but fundamentally we have a conversation and i am looking for both that deep appreciation of the individuals that they work with and have worked with in the past that that curiosity that at least describes good word and a real sense of possibility fundamentally and i think that's kind of a key thing for everyone in the organization that we're never satisfied with 
the current situation for someone we always believe that more can be done that there is always the possibility for for people to flourish Mm, that leads us on very nicely chris thank you for uh, leading us so skillfully into beryl's story because this is a great story and it just illustrates exactly what you're saying, I think. Yes, yes, I, I love this. this. This was um quite a few years ago now, but it's one of the stories I tell when I'm, I'm talking about creativity and care. Yes, I went to visit a care home, as I often did at the time, and went and had what you'd think of as, as sort of a fairly standard visit. The manager was lovely. She wanted to show me around. Um, we went into the lounge. The TV was on. Everyone in the lounge was asleep. Unfortunately, yeah not unusual and one of the ladies on the couch noticed by the manager she had some spits at the side of her mouth and she Mm. gently knelt down and wiped it away and Belle gave a thin smile and her attention Mm. drifted to to her cardigan Mm. on her lap and we went on and the, the visit continued and I had occasion to come back to that same care home a couple of weeks later and This time when I arrived, there was a police car on the drive and I went in and the reception was deserted and there was a racket coming from from that lounge that I'd been in previously. And on opening the door, I was confronted by a room full of activity. Someone yelled across, is he all right if he comes in, Beryl? And there across the room was the same lady that I'd met a couple of weeks earlier shakily pouring a, a whiskey into a tumbler um, <laughs> with, a, with a massive grin on her face. And I came to realise that I was in a makeshift pub and Beryl was the landlady of, mm. of this pub. And just as I was kind of settling in, found myself poured a drink, someone shouts <laughs> out, the old Billa here. And uh, in comes the police officer Beryl yells, it's the Rosers, and uh, everyone collapses into fits of laughter. And I love the transformation that was created. So it had been set up that the Rosers would arrive to sort of, to break up the, the sort of the lock-in. The lock-in, yes. In the care exactly. home, brilliant. In I mean, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it was just brilliant. And Beryl was in her element because the environment had been created for yep. her to thrive in. She had status. She was fulfilling yep. a role that she knew how to fulfill. Yes. Um, and she was absolutely thriving. And the key for me was how this came to be. Yes, quite. What caused it. And so I went digging to find out. And what occurred was that a new member of staff had arrived and had seen that the tea round was very bog standard it was the trolley going round tea and biscuits big flask of tea tea and biscuits yeah you'd seen it a thousand times and she kind of thought well how can we improve on that and she went to the manager with a bit of a proposal and the manager said yes go for it and Mm. so she loaded up the trolley with a few other things including a, a bottle of whiskey and when she brought it round to Beryl her eyes lit up and there was a conversation and that genuine connection. And mm, mm, in mm. that, all this information was learned about Beryl. And mm, mm. from there, the carer developed this idea and, and sort of said to colleagues, look, she used to be a landlord. What can we do with that? Mm. And the pub transpired out of that. Someone else knew the police officer, asked them to drop round. Um, and there was a real spark. Yeah. It takes a lot for the manager to have the guts to do that, though, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. And this is the point about leadership that I think is so crucial in every walk of life and in care particularly, that leaders are creating the conditions where new ideas are welcome Mm. and people are willing to try things out and do something differently. When the first request came in, if the manager had been busy, and maybe the manager was busy, Mm. but it would be very easy and understandable to go, oh, hang on, come back later, don't worry about that, just do what what you normally do. There was a culture in that service that meant that people felt free and safe to propose something. And when the colleagues around her heard about it, they got excited. Yes, yes. It has a real snowball effect, doesn't it? And everybody benefits, really. Everybody benefits. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. But mm. it's so easy for that snowball to get quashed. Mm. Mm. Yes, I liked your phrase when you were emailing me before. You said, you know, you like to think in terms of yes and. 
what else? Instead of, yes, but there are umpteen reasons why we can't do this. 100%. We, we access a very different part of our neurology when we use the language of and rather than but, because but throws us into defensive mode and and throws us into an expansive mode. Yes. I do this hundreds of times with groups of carers and you get very different amounts of laughter and joy and much more diverse and interesting ideas just by that very little change in language. Yes, because but is a closing off, isn't it, of options, and and is a very expansive opening up. Exactly. I mean, language is incredible, actually, isn't it, the power it has. I just want to talk to you now, though. I want you to go right back to your childhood, Chris, because this fantastic sort of can-do, yes-and attitude that you have, it strikes me, without wanting to be sort of too cod psychologist about it, that in your childhood you have meningitis. Twice, I think, when you were two and when you were 17, which led you being deaf until you got hearing aids at about 14, I think. And, and, you know, the influences that this had on you, just explain that, because I think this really is interesting in terms of what you do now and your attitude to life. Yeah, it was certainly a kind of a formative set of experiences for me. And part of it was kind of as uh, a young man lying in a hospital bed, having nearly died again. Um, it's definitely kind of caused me to think quite hard on, on what my purpose was and why I'm here, perhaps earlier than most. I'm in my 40s now, and I, I do kind of think I had my midlife crisis age 17 at some level. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of it was having had this experience of losing about half of my hearing, struggling to communicate in kind of most social situations and having to learn to walk again. And then my parents, um, my mum particularly, being kind of very nervous of me, I think, and kind of understandably now as a parent. Mm. Nervous for you. Mm. Yes, exactly. And kind of wanting to protect me and, and yes. look after me and kind of, mm. you know, that she would, mm. she'd worry about me cycling on a bike because mm. I my balance issues she'd worry excessively about me anytime I got ill and I found that quite constraining I think ultimately I didn't see yeah I didn't see why I couldn't do anything that anyone else could Mm. ultimately Mm. and I think I've reacted quite strongly against that in in this sense of possibility and that's the driving force for me really is that I yes you said to me you like to release the possible which is a great phrase yes in whatever situation I'm in whether that's that's for a person for myself or for an organization that's kind of becomes a a real driver Mm. and I expect you were very attuned to non-verbal communication when you couldn't hear so well which would give you a sympathy with people with dementia and also with any kind of feeling outside yes yeah completely and as a teenager that couldn't communicate as easily as my peers I think it it gave me a particular perspective and really tuned me in to the non-verbal which Mm. both of which I think have been kind of real assets. Could I just bring in Alice again there because um, I think it was you Alice when we were sort of having a few conversations before today what Chris is now talking about this sympathy with outsiders and that I think at one point you were talking about the way that sometimes there is a sort of othering that goes on and when that doesn't go on, uh, how, how good it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of back to that stigma again. And we see it with older adults in general, sort of an ageism. And then uh, unfortunately, it's even worse sometimes for people living with dementia. But again, it's that essential sort of human connection side. And there are even models of uh, underpinning this, you know, some coming from a deep psychological background, Kitwood, who was sort of the grandfather of dementia. This is Tom uh, Kitwood, isn't Tom it? Tom Kitwood, yeah, of person-centered dementia care. He talks about one of the five psychological needs being inclusion and and another one being attachment Mm. and you can't possibly feel included or attached to another human being if you're being othered if you don't feel like you belong and if that Mm. other person is making you feel in any way and often not meaning to but just not including you and 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 not setting that safe psychological space for you Mm, that's interesting isn't it Now, Nathan, can I sort of turn back to you, actually, to talk to you um, again, you know, in sort of financial terms? And if you could just talk about how people are best able to look after their financial future in terms of care costs, because I think you're now very well placed to see the difficulties they they face at this time of life and see what might be some of the solutions that you can provide. I think the, the main thing I would say is that you need to engage early with a financial planner, really, and the earlier the better, because... 
there's an immense amount of pressure on the people making the decisions because mm. there's often a lump of money from a house sale or that that person's worked years to build up mm. and suddenly you've got this pressure you've got a lot of money going out the door and there is a temptation to just leave it in cash and not do anything with it mm. and a lot of that a lot of the time that is the right thing to do but it's just trying to understand that well if, if we do that how long is it going to be until that money runs out and are there any options available because what you don't want to do is get down to your last few thousand and then be subject to what the local authority are able to offer if if there's a bit more flexibility with it and um, engage early and do that and there is actually a network of financial planners called the society of later life advisors who have to go through a, mm. a very strict entry requirements and interviews etc who are all specialists in that long-term care planning mm, um, that's interesting to, yeah so so i'd say just engage early and, and any good financial planner would give you an hour of their time just to chat through the situation because it might be that you've got everything covered and they can mm. just give you a tick and you can move on but it's it's just engaging early and just having somebody just sense check what you're doing because mm, in my experience people just aren't aware of their options they're not told of their options and I know myself, you know, I'm quite cynical sometimes as well. So um, with my father, it was actually in particular, who A, fell into that category, Nathan, of just keeping his money, really. He was so proud of all this money he got. And I remember thinking, but yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, what do we, we need to use this to help mum out and this sort of thing. You know, obviously he wasn't doing it with any malice. He, th- he thought it was the best thing was to have it as this chunk of money. And the other thing is that I was quite cynical and wary if financial planners wandered into my path because I'd be thinking well yes it's all very well you saying that but I knew that really what they wanted was my business and I think that's slowly changing Mm. um I'd be hesitant about financial advisors versus financial planners the idea of a somebody who could do a plan because sometimes the best thing is to leave your money in cash right Mm -hmm. and and not if, if you've got a very short time horizon for an investment that's never it's never appropriate to to be investing but there's lots of different avenues and it's just a little bit of it is just a bit of education a bit of opening people's eyes and saying well these are potential options and these are why they could be suitable or might not be suitable Mm. but it's that constant thing you don't know what you don't know and probably our biggest danger is the sort of circle of friends or somebody down the pub who says oh, I've done this. Usually, oh, I gave away my house mm. just before. Uh, my mum gave away the house. As soon as she got dementia, it's fine. And then you just go, oh, my God. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. So it, it's just trying to take expert legal financial advice. Sometimes it can be expensive, but just be aware of what you're paying and, and make sure you feel comfortable you're getting value for money for it. Thank you, Nathan. That was uh, great advice from you there. Uh, We're drawing to a close now, and I thought it'd be lovely to end with one of Carrie's beautifully written blogs. Before we do that, I'd just like to thank all four of you for recording today's podcast with me and explaining what you do. I thought the planning aspects, the wraparound nature of your offering and the all-important one point of contact are all the sort of things that people want for for them and for their loved ones at these very difficult times. I know that I could have done with them when I was looking after my mum and dad. Of course, you're a company and there are costs involved and they're very clearly set out on your website and I'll give the title of that at the end, but it's basically Plan With Care. But I'll give you the website detail in a moment. But now we're going to hear from Carrie and we're going to play out with... A lovely song that Elise wrote and she's singing it too and it's called Lemonade and it includes some really relevant lines I think. They're relevant to Plan With Care and to today's podcast and one of the lines really struck me it says because every moment's focused on the next step we tell ourselves that's what it takes to make it but I wonder if we notice when we get there and I thought that was so so relevant, very pertinent, because it's really all about living in the moment. So now, over to you, Carrie, to read us out with your beautiful blog about how you see Emma's dementia as like a fog. Certainly. I sometimes think of Emma's dementia as a fog, and I'm searching for her in the mist. Some days I can reach out and we find each other, 
but other days we can't quite meet up. Then there are days like this one where the fog has settled for a while and I can see her clearly. The point is that she's always there for me to find, but it's hard to see her sometimes. I will never give up searching as I know that she's still there. When we have moments such as this, it reinforces my belief that she is not truly lost to me, nor will she ever be. If I grow old, I know I'll care for flowers, feed those birds and while away the hours, hope that someone will be there if I fall down, hope that dreams have all come true so I sleep sound, cause what's the use of worrying about living? When I'm forgetting and forgiving All those times we should have spoken of what's wrong All those spells we could have broken and moved on Cause every moment's focused on the next step I tell myself that's what it takes to make it But I wonder if I'd Well, I so enjoyed making that podcast. It was quite tricky, I must admit, to keep track of four people on the end of my line without mishap. We just about made it. I knew Elise, of course, and once again was struck by her calm eloquence and natural empathy. And I was struck too by Chris Gage's enthusiasm. I can just imagine him beavering away on his laptop on his way home from that initial meeting with his friend Nathan. It's always fascinating to me to discover how people's childhoods have influenced them often without them really being aware of it. And Chris's brush with death and his subsequent deafness definitely had a profound impact on his attitude to life and to others. We try to release the possible, he says of Plan With Care. What a wonderful aim. My world and the dementia world, perhaps the world full stop, is built on connections. It's part of why I so enjoy creating my podcasts. Part of what I do involves networking, discovering interesting, curious, passionate people through all the other interesting, curious, passionate people I know. After the podcast, my guests and I carried on chatting for a while and Nathan, the one who looks after the finances, mentioned that while they're all aware that cost is always an issue for people, they see Plan With Care as an innovative company, almost like a social enterprise, and that they want it to be part of a bigger change to show what can be done. They hope that care and wellbeing consultancies hopefully with creative companions as imaginative and caring as Carrie, become the norm, because they believe that such models genuinely enhance not only the lives of those who need extra support, but also those providing it. Nathan mentioned the Society of Later Life Advisors, which can be found at societyoflaterlifeadvisors.co.uk and the Plan With Care website itself is at www.planwithcare.co.uk And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.